Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey, the government plant knock grinder. I hope not. Anyways, <laughs> as Corey's alluding to, today's episode is all full of the great things that the U.S. government is doing in the realm of cybersecurity. Rah, 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 Alexa. USA! The intelligence agencies love you. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, we'll have some updates from the likes of CISA as well as the White House. And I guess, like, that's all the intro with need. With that, let's just go ahead and roll our way in. Rolling, rolling, rolling. Imagine a Every little roly poly with the hard shell because we're security. That's probably it. So let's start today with a pretty interesting tool, at least from my perspective as someone working in security operations with aspirations of someday starting a red team here at WatchGuard. Uh, CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, infrastructure and security agency, there's an and in there. One of these days I will get their acronym correct on the very first go. Uh, they just published a brand new tool that they're calling RedEye, which they oh. said is designed Something oh. to help you out on long, light, late flights, I guess. Exactly. How? Oh, let's move on <laughs> to the next story. Um, <laughs> no, so it's actually designed for red team campaign visualizations and reporting. So before we jump into this, like I've mentioned red team a couple times now, and I feel like we should probably define that for some folks that may not be in day-to-day -day security roles. So you're probably familiar with the concept of like penetration testing or vulnerability assessments or security assessments within an organization where, you know, at a minimum you go run like a Nessus scan against your network, but a little more in depth, you might actually, you know, do a hand, uh, I guess a sweep of all your uh, actual assets, try and figure out, you know, fingerprint them, figure out exactly what they're running, look for any like software vulnerabilities or application vulnerabilities, or even just like process vulnerabilities within your organization. But uh, general basic penetration tests, they really only show you like potential, uh, they'll confirmed, but like potential security vulnerabilities. Like they'll say this server is out of date or running this thing or yeah. this misconfiguration or whatever. In fact, some of them can be very false positive. Like, like it depends on what level of these automated scans you do, but something like an Nmap fingerprint, it's essentially looking at headers to get a server version. And it's basically just saying, oh, if it's this server version, I know that there's these vulnerabilities associated with it, so it probably has those. But that level of test, it, it doesn't probe more than the, the header, so maybe you were only vulnerable to CV, uh, CVE123 if you turned on a feature and you hadn't turned on that feature. So actually it's kind of misreporting. Then I would say the Nessus type scanners or the OpenVAS or, or Qualys, some of them might do a little more probing than headers. They might throw a, a few additional packets at a server that might be able to figure out whether certain things are turned on to at least make more sure you're vulnerable and they're a bit better. But again, there might be mitigations down the line that prevent it from being exploited, that maybe a security control would have stopped it. So you really aren't, you know, you know about the vulnerability already, but you're not, not vulnerable. But what you're saying is the red team adds the human. And it's usually the difference is 
they will go in and see if it's exploitable. They actually start to get to maybe running exploits or doing some manual work to see if they actually can get a cred or get the, a result from whatever the vulnerability is and then take it further. Yeah, how I differentiate it is like a traditional penetration test will tell you like your potential vulnerabilities in an organization that you need to go remediate. A red team engagement basically cranks that up to 11. And instead of just telling you your vulnerabilities, they also actively test your defensive capabilities too. Uh, the blue team side, as it's called. Basically, they're not just trying to find like potential holes. They're trying to see, are you capable of detecting us as we go through those holes and try and do some simulated action on objective? And in fact, more often than not, they even use like what's called adversarial emulation. So they'll take the TTPs, the tools, tactics, and procedures of some known threat actor. So like, let's say, you know, Fancy Bear out of Russia and like their main methods of initiating and carrying out a cyber attack. And a red team will copy that and test it against an organization. So you can ask yourself, you know, am I vulnerable to that style of attack from this organization? Well, let's go actually test it and test our capabilities of detecting it. Um, it's typically like red team exercises are typically only used by larger organizations with a more mature security um, operation. Because again, it's it's more than just a, a like, so there's, there's benefits and obvious value for like a traditional penetration test and even just like vulnerability management in your organization. But once you've got a good framework and you're proactive about your security, going and testing your responses to some of these threats, some of the more sophisticated attacks is really the next step. And like this probably isn't appropriate for, you know, the small mom and pop shop or the small law firm. Like the reality is they're they've got limited finances and their money's better spent elsewhere. They are, or, or to say not appropriate, it's probably not appropriate for them to have an internal red team. But right. it is possible, especially for a law firm that might have more compliance, to hire out a occasional red team in service. You know, whether or not you have built-in red teaming that happens very regularly on a quarter-to-quarter -quarter basis or even more versus going to a managed service provider, or in this case, red team, you probably won't get red teaming from a managed service provider. For that, you would have to go to a managed security service provider, someone that's focused on security. It, it, it could be something, I, I mean, it would be great for small businesses. It's all about cost. And uh, you definitely probably can't have your own team, but you might be able to do it occasionally as part of your audits. Yep. And to be clear, like this whole red teaming engagements, they're not designed to like shame the defenders for an organization, like to shame your defensive tools and like be like, ha, look, I got you. The whole system is designed so that you can come back with specific guidance on things that you can do to improve. Like, hey, we were able to get by and you didn't detect this. So here's the control you need to put in place in order to detect that type of action sort of thing. I would say to add on to your point of adversarial emulation, Honestly, it doesn't matter what vulnerability they got into. Like your vulnerability scanners are helping you close vulnerabilities, but there's always going to be a zero day. So I think the learning isn't learning the root cause whole. It's when people get root get in, they tend to not, they're not finished. There's a lot of pivoting and lateral movement and things they have to do. And that's the type of activity your blue team can catch, but they can only catch it if you have a SOC, you have real-time monitoring and you're looking for that kind of stuff. So the type of improvements you're getting will probably be internal lateral movements and, and monitoring capabilities of the blue team so that, you know, it may not be to prevent the new zero day attack itself because, hey, it's zero day. It's more about 
catching what the actor does inside uh, so that you can prevent the bad stuff from happening before it gets out. Yeah. Would you say there are multiple places on the kill chain where you can stop the cyber attack and even if you can't stop the delivery of malware or the actual uh, exploit that they're using, if you can stop their lateral movement, you can effectively prevent the disaster from happening. It's not to say, you know, red teams won't find novel new root cause holes too, but there's value in them regardless. Uh, It's it's definitely not just uh, looking for vulnerabilities. Yep. So one of the difficulties though with red team engagements is like, how do you go back to the blue team, the defenders, the, you know, the, the sock and tell them like paint a story of exactly how you got in with like, uh, tips on how to actually close up those holes. And that's what CISA is trying to solve or at least help out with red eye. Like it's actually a pretty cool tool, um, as I was poking around in it, that basically it can ingest logs from your red team campaign from whatever, uh, simulation you were running uh, and then paint a picture of exactly what was going on so it can take in things from like cobalt strike or other tools like that and then do full campaign playbacks so you can see okay we exploited this vulnerability on this server then we obtained this credential from this memory location and then use that to log into this server and basically paint this giant map as they go along the um, entire campaign that they were running that's uh, pretty dang cool again this i wanted to highlight this tool because it's interesting to me not necessarily applicable to a lot of uh, our listeners or small, mid-sized enterprises on their own. But if you do run a security team, if you do uh, some of your own, even just like small red teaming, this could be a pretty cool tool to use. And really, like it's not even the first thing that CISA has put out. Like CISA actually releases a lot of tools on their GitHub page. Um, things like, so Sparrow was a pretty big one. They put out a couple of years ago now. It's a tool to detect possible compromised accounts and applications in your Azure and Microsoft 365 environments. Uh, They've got Aviary, which is the visualization tool for Sparrow. So you can take in the logs from that of potentially compromised accounts and visualize it well. Uh, One that's really cool um, that I'd like to start using uh, is called Malcolm, which is a network traffic analyzer. So basically you can take in a packet capture of activity on your network and it will enrich that with additional information like GOIP lookups, cool maps, cool visualizations, and then basically give you a much better view than like Wireshark would give you as an example for a full view of network traffic. Um, they've got their own actual packet capture or network traffic capture appliance that they uh, published called Hedgehog Linux, basically a stripped down hardened version of Linux that you use to uh, mirror traffic to. They've got CSET which is a, the cybersecurity evaluation tool. Basically, it's a desktop application that walks you through a questionnaire for your own organization to gauge your own security maturity and then give you actual prioritized lists of what to go tackle for potential improvements. Like all these really cool tools that just folks at CISA have put together and released publicly as open source for any organization to use. Definitely recommend checking out CISA's GitHub page. So by know. the way, I, I'm talking point i'm going to be devil's advocate i'll say i'm being devil's advocate mark because you and i just went to fbi ciso academy which by the way includes cisa they were a heavy part of it as guests and i actually think the the current intelligence agency's you know strategy is is openness and helping the private sector but i think that there's folks out there that would wonder oh these sound cool 
but is there some sort of back channel? If I use Hedgehog Linux and do network capture, are they gathering data? Like, like what is their motive for these secret tools? Is it to gather more private information? Uh, I know how I would answer that if I were you, but I'm the devil's advocate pitching it to you, Mark. So what do you think? Uh, my response is it is all open source. All of it is fully open source. It's not like a black box that you go set up on your network. So obviously not every organization has the capability to go review every single line of source code to make sure but that it didn't slip in some backdoor. But through the grand scheme of things with the number of eyes, like some of these have 10,000 forks on them in GitHub. Like there's a yeah. lot of people looking at it. And so my assumption is that if there was some super secret NSA backdoor in one of these tools, it would have been found out by now strictly because every line of code is available to every single researcher out there. And I guarantee there's people out there specifically looking for the U.S. government screwing around with stuff like that. So that's my and to re Yeah, I agree with that. And, and to respond even more, even ignoring the open source part of it, which anyone can check up on themselves. Uh, they do have a, a selfish motive, and that's because they want to pro protect this nation, which includes critical infrastructure. And guess what? Critical infrastructure is private. It's not government. Electric utilities, uh, meat processing, supply chains, manufacturing, all of that is private business. So if you're that kind of... Uh, you know, person that's skeptical and wondering what is their motive, it must be to gather information. They have a motive, and the motive is for themselves because they are here to protect the nation. But that motive is they have to pr protect private businesses to protect the nation because you are critical infrastructure, or, or many types of businesses are. So I, I think it's a clean, I think these are clean, cool tools. I think it's a great thing. And uh, they're doing it because they realize that the infrastructure that they need to protect is in, in, in private industry's hands. So that's why they're trying to give private industry tools that can help. Yep. And while CISA's like, mission is designed towards uh, critical infrastructure, which doesn't encompass every single business out there, it does encompass a large portion of them. You'd be surprised at what is actually categorized as yeah. critical infrastructure. So we talk, though, yeah, we, we can't share a ton of detail, obviously, but uh, imagine everyone knows like nuclear and electricity is probably critical infrastructure, but think of just random parts manufacturers. Uh, energy businesses need certain motors and motors need certain parts. So even tiny companies that aren't directly related to energy might make a part that goes into a motor that suddenly becomes part of this whole thing. CISA is, wants to pay attention to, to what you just said, Mark. Yeah. Yep. But, and what I was getting at though, even though like these are designed because their goal is to protect critical infrastructure, a lot of these tools they've released, you don't have to be critical. Oh, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. Find value yeah, yeah. In them. Yeah, yeah, it, it's not. This isn't just for critical infrastructure, but but I'm just trying to share a, a upboard motive for why the government would release three tools to everybody. Hundred percent, totally board. makes sense. Because yeah. like, I mean, yes, CISA's goal is critical infrastructure. The reality is, the overwhelming majority of critical infrastructure is run by private organizations. So. Yeah, and uh, what I was trying to get at is the nation's economy is critical infrastructure. A finance organization. A grocery store being able to have business is critical infrastructure because if we can't get food, you know, and, and, you know, selling things at retail outlet, I mean, our whole economy is, is probably the number one important thing to our nation. It's what feeds us every day and makes us a productive nation. So, uh, 
uh, yeah, I didn't want to limit who could use these tools. I'm just saying they're they're trying to protect us for their own good because they're out here to protect the nation. Yep, pretty cool stuff. Um, so moving on, though, uh, continuing our episode on United States government actions. Uh, so back in 2020, I think we talked about this on the podcast back then, but I could be wrong. Uh, the U European Union dis discontinued a program that was a joint program with the United States called Privacy Shield, which is basically an agreement that at a high level allows U.S. companies to transfer and store data of EU individuals on servers located physically in the United States. A thousand foot view of that one. Uh, the EU killed it largely because the United States wasn't providing any real way for EU citizens to combat overreach by U.S. intelligence collections activities. Basically, they were concerned that if, let's say, Google or Facebook or whatever was gathering all these EU citizens' data, bringing it across the Atlantic, storing it in servers in the U.S., was the NSA being given free reign to view all that data? Uh, this was in part, I'd, I'd have to say, the, the Snowden leaks probably were a pretty substantial factor and getting this brought to the front to the point where it was actually canceled and privacy shield getting nuked actually caused quite a big issue in the private space. Like even at WatchGuard, like we've got WatchGuard cloud with EU customer data and it made us really take a hard look at, you know, what are our protections as an organization as we're working with that data. Now to spill a bit of the beans, like you choose your data location. If you're a WatchGuard cloud customer data servers somewhere in Europe or US or wherever, but for even larger organizations like Meta, so Facebook as an example, they were straight up threatening to pull out of Europe and say no more Instagram or Facebook for European citizens because they could not continue to function without some sort of agreement to allow that data to uh, come into the United States. So earlier this year, the United States uh, announced the European Union US Data Privacy Framework, which was built on Privacy Shield and resolved some of those issues. And the reason we bring this back up is because the White House actually just announced some very specific implement implementations of that policy uh, via a executive order that Biden just signed, I think like last week or the week before. So at a high level, what this new executive order does is it actually places some guardrails on US intelligence collection activities. So there's now an explicit requirement that uh, they can only do it, quote, in the pursuit of a defined national security objective. So no more just blanket, all this data comes in, well, let's just throw a network tap on it and copy all of it and deal with it later. Now they can only collect data uh, that falls under the jurisdiction of this new privacy protection if they've got a specific objective that they're going for. Uh, it also creates a independent and binding mechanism uh, enabling individuals to seek redress if they believe that their personal data was collected through U.S. signals intelligence in a matter that was uh, violated U.S. law. So there's actually a few different layers to this. First off, there's, what do they call it? The uh, uh, There's an independent civil liberties protection officer now in the uh, Office of the Director of National Intelligence that can do investigations into complaints from uh, EU or, I guess, European citizens that fall under this. And they can actually... Uh, determine appropriate remediation, and that remediation is binding within the U.S. intelligence organizations. It also creates a new data protection review court that can provide independent binding reviews of that officer's decisions. And most importantly, the judges for that are actually appointed from outside of the U.S. government. So it's not like they can just have 
all their buddies in there and say, yep, rubber stamp, whatever looks good. So long story short, though, uh, this is, I think, the third iteration of some sort of transatlantic data privacy agreement. Um, and Corey, like, why do, you, why do you think this is actually necessary? So I mentioned a few of the cases, like, do businesses actually need to be able to import data from Europe in order to function? Facebook says so, but do we trust Facebook? Yeah, I, I think the audience knows that we don't love Facebook, although sometimes I think they get uh, more grief than they deserve. But yeah, there's issues. I mean, we run into this. Mark, Mark and I support consumer privacy. I think it's very clear. Uh, but WatchGuard, uh, we gather data from devices that, that's often anonymous, but even the public IP it's coming from is considered PII under GDPR. And we gather things like this threat intel to do things like threat hunting. Uh, one of the things our, our EPDR product does is offer a lot of analytics that we could use to find, wait a second, we see a threat happening on some of your endpoints and we can have a service that can tell you about it. But our threat analysts are all around the world. We certainly do things to follow GDPR, like have data centers in different locations so we can place the data in your region and thus follow GDPR. But GDPR has things like that also means not only does the data have to be in the region, but as soon as a US actor, for instance, tries to do analytics or look at data in a European region, that become, that's a transfer of data even if the data is not moved to the US. And things like Privacy Shield made that easier to do without considering all kinds of legal risk. And, you know, malware happens at all times of the day. Sometimes European researchers might want to look at stuff happening in the U.S. and vice versa to give you some good services to give to that would result in benefit for the customer. And GDPR can complicate that without mechanisms that allow for at least accessing data that we're storing in a certain region. So, you know, I, I will say I, GDPR as a, a consumer for and privacy advocate, I like it in general, but it has made things harder to do uh, that sometimes are not really violating privacy or doing anything to violate your privacy in any way. And uh, Privacy Shield was something we used to solve some of the issues of, of handling or at least having U.S. Or, or other region folks access data that we can't use now. Uh, so having something like this, if this does improve that ability again, it could be helpful. So we, we, we you know, I think the balance we, you need to find with this privacy is Ultimately, you've given a company your data. I mean, if, if we follow GDPR, you've agreed to us having your data for something. So you understand there's a reason, there, there's a good reason we can use it. And if it's a global company, sometimes folks work in different regions, especially in this remote world where we're going to hybrid work and can hire folks everywhere. So we need to solve this problem because otherwise the benefits are gonna go away for customers too. Because if it becomes too costly and too complex for a business to do this, like if suddenly we have to only hire teams and separate teams in every region to look at data in that region, that becomes too costly for the company side. And they're just going to take away features that may have been a benefit. So I, that is very general, Mark, but I, I, it's a fine balance because I think there's definitely businesses that have taken advantage of this too. 
and have lost private Cough. information. Facebook. Yeah, yeah, which is why GDPR exists. Uh, by the way, Meta, right? <laughs> so that they get the right. If you want to target them, make sure you use their new name so people know. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, I, yeah, I. I just, I, I, it's, it's a, it's a touchy, it's a, it's a hard subject. So I'm curious what this will really do though, if this would be acceptable, because the folks that are worried about the U.S. government, like, I like this to me, like when you're thinking just generally about the Fed having access, sometimes being able to subpoena data for court cases, I actually think they need, they should be allowed to do that as long as it's a very, as long as there's balance, checks and balances, and they're only subpoena information of known bad actors with, or a known case that has evidence and stuff. And it sounds like this is putting good checks and balances about what data. So hopefully this will quell the folks in the European Union, for instance who don't trust the American government. But I question, will it really? I, I mean, is this enough that it, for the folks that believe that and the whole reason they did GDPR and removed Privacy Shield is because they didn't trust the U.S. government to follow their checks and balances that already existed. Will this end up getting signed and go through and, and be part of it? <laughs> That is the whole point is you still have to trust that the U.S. government or at least our intelligence operations are going to follow along with it. Like you could assume that, yes, they probably are. But at the same time, like it's yeah. difficult. And I, I, I guarantee it, this is not the yeah. only legal challenge that this type of agreement is going to face. Maybe yeah. we'll see a version four at some point here soon. I having met intelligence agents, I you know, I, I think it trust really depends on meeting someone, talking to them, and getting to know them. I, I, I can only speak to this current, what's, what's the intelligence agents now, and the current uh, leadership at, at places like FBI and CISA. I feel like they really do honestly have the the right thing in mind. They, they are trying to find ways where they can catch bad guys without messing with anyone's privacy that's uh, totally innocent so yeah but uh, i guess the the worry is leadership changes things change policies change so we get both sides of it there's been periods where i've been less trusting myself too 100 percent um speaking of trust in the government though or at least more government actions uh, so this last thursday the white house actually put out this big like cybersecurity focused press release it was in my opinion, mostly like a politically motivated thing, basically a, hey, look at all the things the White House is doing on midterms. Cyber. Rah, rah, rah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was like, I don't know, a dozen, couple dozen like bullet points of like all these cybersecurity related things that they've been doing recently. Uh, but one of those bullet points in there was actually like something relatively new news wise that was actually pretty interesting. Um, so it turns out that the White House is actually bringing together around 50 or so private sector organizations and government partners to discuss creating a voluntary label for Internet of Things devices to help American consumers um, figure out and identify which devices meet the highest cybersecurity standards. So this is something that like we've you and I have talked about quite a bit, like some sort of like security I was going to say pr prediction potentially coming true three or four years later was one of our predictions. I can't remember. Years are going by far too fast now, Mark. We were just talking about the fact that it's already October, uh, halfway through October when you guys listen to this. But uh, you might remember a prediction where we said the government would start regulating IoT in some way. I guess this isn't so much a regulation. It's like a 
like the FDA requires nutritional information for food. This is like a, a kind of a here's your here's how good the security information is of this this networking IoT product is. They're but I think it's it great. A, uh, yeah. It's a cybersecurity energy star label where it's a voluntary program like Samsung and all your other manufacturers don't have to slap an energy star sticker on their stuff. It's just a consumer expectation at this point now to know how much electricity your major appliance is going to use over the course of a year. And this is designed to be somewhat like that, where uh, you'll get some basic expectations of what the actual security capability, or at least security protections are on these devices that you buy. And it's up to you um, as a consumer to pay attention, but at least there's a marking. If it doesn't have it, you should take that under consideration. If it does have it, you can compare one to the other. So the White House is specifically starting with uh, what they describe as the most uh, most at-risk technologies. So routers and home cameras are first on the top of the list because uh, they want to try and they said deliver the most impact quickly. And that I would say good like, choices. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I assume with routers, I hope they include wireless access points in routers since they technically are. I assume they are part of it. But obviously that would include even firewalls, which act as routers too. Yeah. My assumption when they say routers, they mean the thing you go to Best Buy and pick up off the shelf there. So think like your Netgear, Linksys, whatever wireless router modem combo thing yeah. is probably a very good first place to start. And then, of course, home cameras, because, I mean, we saw with the Mirai botnet, like they are a prime target for uh, attacks from uh, adversaries out there. Uh, so the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emergency Tech, Emerging Tech, uh, Ann Neuberger, is the one in charge of all this. Um, and actually, so with their with one of the news articles on this, they managed to get a, a quote from an anonymous official saying, today when folks buy tech, they buy it for cool features or speed to market. Cybersecurity is often an afterthought. And I mean, it's good hearing this as the motivation behind it because this is exactly what we've been saying for the last decade, it feels like. Like the typical con consumer right now doesn't really care like how secure it is necessarily. They just want it to work and they want it to be quick. But by creating this program and slapping a Energy Star-like certification sticker thing on the packaging, it could drive that consumer um, demand to now also consider the security impacts of something. I, I definitely think so. I mean, I think uh, I've been disappointed that consumers don't vote with their wallet on security. But in hindsight, it's because they're, and I mean this in a kind way, ignorant of it. They don't know how, how can a consumer like what consumer is going to go research Linksys versus D-Links security features and uh, understand the difference between, you know, go into enough detail to know which one has a default password and secure boot versus. I mean, you, you have to practically get security expertise just to know what to look for. So I actually think maybe the voting with the wallet hasn't happened because there isn't that nutritional information version of an energy star like guide on a product. And with it, it once it's there, it's it's simple. I don't know exactly what they're grading or, or what the how exactly this energy star like symbol will look like. But if they have some sort of grade between C to A or, or something, or even just a list of security features, you can see which one is long or short. It people will make decisions based on it quickly. So the idea is that they've proposed so far, and again, this is very much like a throwing stuff at the wall. They still are bringing in experts to voice their opinion too. But so far, like the idea I liked is 
they want to create like a barcode, like QR code style label that you put on the box where a consumer yeah. can scan it with your phone and see security gradings on it. Some cool. of the standards that they're considering right now are things like how often does a manufacturer deploy patches for software vulnerabilities? Uh, does the device connect to the internet without a password? Like basically a security checklist and some gradings on like- So well use encryption for communication. Yep. Yeah. And I, I, I I'm pretty that. sure we talked about this on the podcast, but I think it was three years ago, or actually at my last live Black Hat before we went stale for a while because of the pandemic, uh, there was a talk, or actually it was DEF CON, a talk about this. It it talk about having some sort of national standard of labeling. And the reason I keep on using FDA's nutritional label is they had the same idea. So it's it's nice to see. I wish I remembered on demand the names of the people that had the talk, because I wonder if they are involved at all in this. There was a government and in, in university representation at that talk. So it's nice to see it starting to happen. Apparently, uh, like Singapore and Finland already have similar programs to this for products sold in their yeah. countries, which is just kind of cool. And the U.S. did say that they want to work closely with the EU to align on these standards because their goal is for the label to be on boxes sold globally. Basically, yeah. if the United States and the EU require it, or I guess not require it, strongly encourage it, Most it will probably will. become yeah. a global standard. I would say the only follow-up is, is whatever they're concentrating on for IoT. I would like to see this for software products, too. Uh, and more importantly, healthcare. If you're thinking about verticals, I, right now... Healthcare falls a little bit out of IoT. I, I mean, it technically is, but they have the OT terminology for it. And uh, obviously, healthcare might need rig more rigorous standards. But if there's any technical IoT-like equipment that needs this quickly, it's probably healthcare equipment. Yep. So they're still very much like this is the proposal stage. And a lot of the details need to be ironed out, like who's actually going to do the grading? What does the grading look like? But even like them starting this conversation, and I think it's like in four days, or by the time you listen to this, just a couple of days on the 18th of October, uh, that they're going to be bringing in these organizations to actually have this discussion. Like it's coming up quick, and they are actually getting the ball rolling, which is pretty cool. So looking forward to seeing how this does play out. Maybe, you know, two years from now, we'll be talking about that latest uh, thing we bought from Best Buy or whatever, and the QR code that came on it with the security assurance energy star on it. Should we try and, I think we should try and come up with a name for this. Would it be like the hacker star, the the shield star? I don't know, what are your thoughts, Corey? Any decent name for this type of program? <laughs> you put me on the spot. Put me on the spot, yeah. I like Security like check star. mark already exists. Does hacker it? star? It. How about, if anyone listening to this, if anyone does actually listen point, to this podcast. Pwn points. Or <laughs> pwn points. <laughs> yeah. The higher the pwn, pwn points, the worse the product. Pitch your ideas to us. I'd be interesting to hear if any of our listeners have an idea for a, a potential name for this. But anyways, pretty cool stuff. Looking forward to see how it goes. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey's at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.